you're listening, this is Interfaith-ish, and I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this week I spoke with Rusty Reno, editor of the conservative religion and public affairs magazine First Things, and Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute a Jewish research and education center. While there was some common ground, this was definitely one of those interfaith conversations where it was clear going in that the participants had some very different worldviews. But despite these disagreements, I appreciated the opportunity to discuss some key ideas that frame the ideologies of both my guests. I'll say that, obviously, after last night's... um, Uh, circus at the debate. It was a pleasure to be part of a civil conversation despite the differences um, between folks' beliefs. Through this conversation, we acknowledge the differences, listen to each other, and by the end of the conversation, although it would obviously be unlikely to change each other's minds, I think we hopefully have a better understanding of each other's perspectives. So with that, I will play you my conversation with Rusty and Yehuda. So I'm happy to have as my guest this week, Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, a uh, conservative journal and religion and public affairs magazine. Thanks for being here, Rusty. Great. Great to be with you. And Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Welcome, Yehuda. Thank you for having me. So I want to begin um, first by acknowledging that this is the first time that we've all talked. Um, I personally believe in casting a wide net when it comes to doing interfaith dialogue, and uh, I certainly do it for this show. I'm often surprised by who bites and who's excited by the opportunity for interfaith engagement. And um, in this case, I recognize that between the three of us, I think we've we've likely got a variety of differences in opinion, not just about theology, but also politics. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this being an opportunity for us to to learn and listen from one another. And I appreciate you both for being curious enough to participate. Well, great to great to have the opportunity. Yehuda, we're recording this on Tuesday. Yom Kippur was just observed yesterday, um, and I I won't ask uh, what's something that you've asked for forgiveness for, but uh, <laughs> but I'll ask a similar question that's maybe a little bit softer. Um, what's something that you've committed to doing better in the coming year? Well, you know, it's a strange Yom Kippur, uh, really unlike one I've ever had before. No synagogues could really operate the way that they've operated in the past because of the pandemic. And uh, in fact, I I usually go back and lead services at a congregation that my wife and I started in Boston almost 15 years ago. And we've gone back every year, uh, even since we moved to New York 10 years ago. And instead of doing that, we, we congregated in someone's backyard here in Riverdale. There was a makeshift tent and we put together our services. And, um, and to be honest, I was very nervous going into it. These are highly dramatic days, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of emotional energy that goes into not only planning these services, but living through them. And I was really at just very low expectations. I, I felt it was going to be a big disappointment. And it was actually quite powerful to just, mm-hmm. it was kind of like, a, you can't be with the ones you love, love the ones you're with, and mm-hmm. and make the most of that religious experience. And I feel... As a commitment going forward, I'm trying to think about that as a larger religious and dispositional commitment, which is to get a little bit out of holding up the present as like an inferior version 
of the mm. idea of the ideal and to really try to figure out what does it mean to build a, a religious and communal life uh, in which we the pandemic is just part of life uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to constantly feeling kind of let down uh, by the versions of our religious life that we have to have today. Mm. You're not canceling 2020, it sounds like. <laughs> you know, we don't really have a choice. So uh, this is the world that you have. And I don't, I mean, the bigger piece of this is I don't think, you know, I don't think religion is really meant to be, well, what are the ideal circumstances in which we can practice our faith? Uh, religion, I think, is yeah. supposed to be, here's what the world hands you. And then how do you create an improvised religious response to the world? Yeah. Rusty, as a Catholic, I uh, assume you don't observe Yom Kippur. Although in 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 uh, researching you a little bit, I found out that your kids are Jewish. Well, that's because my wife is Jewish. There you go. <laughs> nice. Okay, so you do have some Yom Kippur familiarity. Uh, yeah, in your, I mean, in your I usually we go to. I mean, as Yehuda said, uh, everything is off this year. We usually mm-hmm. go and spend Yom Kippur with my brother-in-law in Berkeley. Okay. And so I've been to many Yom uh, Kol Nidra and Yom Kippur services, uh-huh. although. Um, since I'm not under these obligations, I don't fast on Yom Kippur, <laughs> much to my wife's dismay. That's a good choice. <laughs> You're on dinner duty, I guess, for, exactly. for fast breaking dinner. Yep. Well, also, certainly atonement is part of the Catholic tradition. So I'm curious also for you, is there something that you're striving to do better at this year? Well, I, I want to I reinforce and second what Yehuda said about um, dealing with how would you, is it really, adversity seems too too weak of a word to describe 2020, but uh, I I certainly get tempted to get angry about Mm. uh, the situation um, that we're in and what I see as the mistakes of our public leaders and so on and so forth. And so one of the things that I've worked hard and tried to really pledge to do, and when I go to confession, I often confess of uh, the sin of anger and to try to to face these challenges in a way that, you know, doesn't pretend that it's not bad, but doesn't re- don't respond with the disposition of anger. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly this pandemic has exposed a lot about our community, a lot about our country, a lot about ourselves. Um, if I can speak frankly for, for my own position, I think I'm learning a lot about myself. Um, and I'm I'm curious, similarly, sort of to to your point, Rusty. Also, what's maybe something significant that you've learned during this past six six months about yourself or the spaces or the communities that you move in? Yehuda, do you have anything that you've been? Yeah, this is. Um, I, I very much identify with one of the things that Rusty said about about anger. I think uh, I think one of the temptations that I feel and I see around me is to be you know, really frustrated with other people not doing the things that they should be doing to prevent this spread of this pandemic, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, well, why are those kids playing softball out there when my kids league canceled? Mm. Um, And why, you know, and and certainly in the Jewish community, this is a very live issue right now, because uh, in New York, especially, there's a huge spike of COVID cases, uh, especially in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. And a lot of this is because of behaviors that are uh, that could prevent that. And a lot of that has to do with congregating around the holidays. And um, and there, I do feel an instinct of like kind of rage at my own people and, um, and frustration. And I realized a couple months ago 
it's totally useless being really angry at someone else for not wearing a mask. I, I don't know what it, it doesn't achieve anything. Not only does it not incentivize other people to behave better, but it just makes you feel uh, even more powerless uh, relative to an, you know, this invisible enemy of a pandemic. So I've, I've been really trying to, to also lean into that, that question of you can control your own behaviors and you can try to model those behaviors and you can try to, I guess, educate and build relationships with others. But there's very, it's like road rage. There's very little value, very little good that comes out of actually manifesting that kind of anger at others. Hmm. On that point, Rusty, you came out very strongly in the early days of the pandemic saying that masks were for cowards. So I'm curious where you stand on that position now, six months in. Well, that was a crude way of saying that um, masks are, are, I mean, you wear a mask in a situation of danger. And so uh, masks create an atmosphere of uh, anxiety about um, your well-being. And you know, I know, obviously, that there are some situations where they're, where they're indicated and, and, and um and can can help pre- prevent the spread of disease, but I think the the com- the comprehensive use of masks um, will have the effect of causing people to 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 be very fearful, and that's really one of the things that I came really learned. I mean, we, we know that death is a frightening thing. Um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist uh, not I mean, to know that, but really in May, in March here in New York at the end of March in early April, I had never in my life experienced really a mass fear of death Mm. uh, on the scale and with the intensity that I experienced in late March and early April. And I got to say, it radicalized me. It probably over-radicalized me against that fear. Uh, Mm. Because it's a perfectly reasonable fear, and Mm. death is a bad thing, and we ought to try to prevent it. So, but I, I, I think I... This is back to the anger point. I don't know what it is, but I, I look back in the spring, especially. It was a time of very heightened emotions, and and mine tended to be in the direction of rebellion against this fear, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and it led, to, I think, to that I think ill-considered remark about masks, which I which I regret. It was obviously not a sign of cowardice. Um, what I was really trying to say is that it. It, it creates a reservoir of fear, so I don't think I don't think people are going to get back on the commuter trains to come into New York until the uh, we drop the masks. Paradoxically, um, because the mask just says danger. Mm-hmm. You know, I, Rusty, I have a very different experience of it, which is um, I, I find that when I'm when I'm wearing a mask and I encounter someone else wearing a mask, I I read it as uh, as an act of love, and I've had that experience even yesterday, walking back from services. So I left the tent, you know, pulled down my mask because I, you know, wanted to breathe a little bit and Mm -hmm. saw somebody coming about, you know, 50 yards towards me. So I, you know, put my mask back up and so did she. And as she passed me, she said, God bless you. And I I was like, oh yeah, that we were both doing, performing an act of love for one another, not knowing who each other was. And, And that's how we tried to talk to our kids in the early days of the pandemic, which is, we're not wearing masks because we're scared of other people. We're wearing masks because we want to prevent the possibility that we make them ill. And um, and I think this is a place for, for a, a major reframe. I, I think masks are an act of citizenship. I think they're an act of love. They're an act of social responsibility. And I think you, people like you and me are in 
in positions to shape the public discourse on this uh, and to say, yes, we know this is basically born of a pandemic that's killing a lot of people and we know that it makes us scared. Uh, but what does it look like for us to, to model a different discourse about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these are these are important points because I think that they both indicate where our collective society is at right now, that we're wrestling with both of these feelings, right? It's it's uncomfortable, it's um, it's unusual, it's it's strange. We have uh, you know a, a cultural feeling of of being masked as being something something that you know would be suspect or whatever, um, and and yet at the same time, like you're saying, Yehuda. You know, we are we are not doing it for our own comfort or our, our I mean, that is a part of it as well. But for, for those of us who are healthy and everything, obviously, we're we're considering the other. Right. We're considering those are around us. And and um, yeah, I think that there's there's a there is a, a, a spiritual element to that dynamic. Right. And I think that what you guys said also about being quick to anger and 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 working on checking that, I think that that's something that I resonate with, too, where. We're just three angry white guys that are trying to tamp it down a little bit for the for the good. Well, one thing I would say, too, on the mass business is that, um, I mean, I, I'm not disputing, I think, what Yehuda says. It's obviously many of my friends have really made the same comments to me. Um, but I, we have to recognize that it also comes at a cost. Um, you know, the face is the way in which we present ourselves to each other. And so the mask is, uh, it, it's, a, it's an element of the cessation of civil life that we've undertaken. Uh, it was obviously most dramatic during the lockdown when people were, um, you know, restricted to their own homes. So you have a complete cessation of, of civic life. And the, the mask is obviously an impairment to the basic exchange that we, under, we undertake each other, the smile, um, you know, the, uh, the, the gesture, uh, and reading people's faces, the, one of the primary ways that we diffuse often awkward and sometimes potentially, um, uh, uh, angry situations in, in public life. And so again, I'm not arguing against saying, well, it's wrong to wear the mask, but I just think we need to be aware that it comes at a cost. And I think small children in schools wearing masks, I think that this, uh, is psychologically, um, uh, not a healthy thing. Again, it doesn't mean we ought not to do it for a season, but we ought to try to be getting rid of the masks as soon as possible. Well, we can all rock uh, some some uh, clear visor Devo helmets, and then we can all see each other's mm-hmm. spots. Um, I, I want to take a step back and um, and also just talk about your your upbringing. Um, both of you are, are Maryland guys, right? Rusty, you grew up uh, outside of Baltimore. I, I think it was Towson. Yes. Is that right? And Yehuda, was it? Silver Spring and yeah. Tacoma Park thereabouts. Silver Spring, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so I'm I'm curious to hear what um what you know that formative experience those years were like for you religiously and um and whether there was sort of a religious or spiritual experience during that time that helped shape your current worldview. Uh, Yehuda, what about for you? Yeah, so I had a little bit of a weird upbringing. I was a diplomat kid. Uh, my father served as a foreign service officer uh, for the U.S. State Department overseas. Uh, so I didn't come back to the States till I was about 10. 
And then he had another uh, tour of duty after I went to college where he served as a U.S. ambassador in both Egypt and in Israel. Uh, and, and I grew up at the same time in, as a, in a modern Orthodox home. It was a very traditional home. And always always was aware of a certain set of kind of paradoxes that were just baked into our lives uh, religiously and socially and made us a little bit different than, than some of our neighbors, including, you know, my father's, you know, standing as both a very proud Jew, a very proud American, and with the belief that there was no, not only was there no contradiction between those two things, but that uh, he could also work towards peace in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians and, and Israel and their neighbors without, without feeling uh, any sense of, um, of conflict between those identities. Mm-hmm. And also just that the experience of being uh, connected to public service, to government, uh, et cetera, uh, I, I don't want to say it was a restraint or a constraint on the, on religious fervor, but it was, it, it definitely complemented uh, what it mean, what it meant to be religious because, uh, because I think that when you have really strong commitments, civically, politically, and religiously, I think they, they have to, they have to be in relationship to each other. So I think all of those pieces uh, were were really um, were central to my, my upbringing. I just felt I grew up in a house that was both religiously devout in all the, all these important ways, and also intellectually and morally very very open minded. Uh, mm. Just because of what my father was kind of bringing home from work, and who, what we would be talking about around the table, and I think that was very very formative for me. Rusty, how about how about for you? What was a formative experience for your spiritual or religious identity growing up? I look back and I realize I had a, uh, a you know, an extraordinarily rooted uh, childhood. I went to the same high, uh, elementary school, high school, and college that my father did. Hmm. Went to the same church. My grandparents lived a mile away. My cousins lived a mile away. Uh, I never had a birthday party with people coming who weren't family members because um, we could make a quorum. You could have a minion with family members or more than a minion with family members. And, and I think that that really influenced my, I just took it all for granted. It wasn't until I went to college that I realized how odd it was. <laughs> you know, my parents lived in the same house for 40 years. Um, um, you know, went to the same church that my grandparents had gone to for 40 years before I was born. The Church of the Redeemer, which is a, an Episcopal church on Charles Street, just inside the city line. Mm-hmm. Baltimore. And it was a liberal Protestant upbringing, uh, what I would call biblical liberal Protestantism. The, 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 the minister from the church had a PhD in New Testament from Harvard and was very good at making uh, the New Testament chime with um, some of the best liberal uh, impulses of the, of the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. So it was a, it wasn't a, it was not a religiously hot environment, but my parents were both uh, very pious in their own way. And at some point, you uh, decided to uh, uh, switch teams, as it were, and uh, and become a Catholic, right? Well, that was a long time later. That was in two thousand and four. So, what inspired that? Well, uh, you know, I went to college, and I had a teacher who was a uh, who did work on Karl Barth, the great Swiss. German theologian. And that's when I really had to make a decision whether I actually believed what Christianity taught as true versus holding it as meaningful. Mm. (laughs) And and I think that was the formative moment. And that's when I decided to go on and do a PhD in theology. I don't think becoming Catholic did not involve 
any deep changes in my theological beliefs. Uh, I was never a Protestant. Um, Anglicanism is this kind of weird, um, and also establishmentarian Episcopalianism in Baltimore sort of stand, you know, in, in my generation, it still was at the last stages of where it stood above um, the differences of other religions. It was the kind of default kind of Christianity for upper middle class uh, Protestants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I, it, so did you feel out of place then with with maybe how you came to see the world as a as a young man? And, and was that the attraction to join something that that um, I don't know, had a had a deeper sense of ritual or or, or a different liturgy or what have you like? A, no, a it was church? more I uh, I I had a very um, churchy view of Christianity as opposed to a um, the more traditional low church Protestant view where it's your personal relation to Jesus. For me, Christianity was being part of a living body, a form of life. And uh, it really had to do with my own personal struggles with the Episcopal church and uh, battles over sexual morality in the, in the nineties and into the aughts that um, it, it demoralized me to the point where when we're back to that point about anger that you can't base your spiritual life on anger. And so I didn't really choose to become Catholic. My, I, I always tell my friends that I, I kind of collapsed into Catholicism um, as the prime substance of Christianity in the West. So I, I want to I talk to a, a bit about, about a couple of ideas that, that I've seen that both of you have written extensively about. Um, and these are these ideas of nationalism and, and pluralism. And, and I want to start by just understanding for each of you what does this idea of nationalism mean um what when you when you think of nationalism what does it mean to you and what are the um i guess what are the 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 pitfalls that our our country is 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 um stepping into as well as the opportunities maybe that that are are before us rusty what do you think yeah i think I mean, it, it, nationalism in its narrow sense means giving priority to the national interest. And which I think is, you know, it has a more pejorative meaning as a, a kind of uh, um, uh, aggressive assertion of the nation, often to the end of dominating others. That's not how I take the term. I take it as a term to pair against globalism that seeks to transcend the nation state and uh, give priority to global institutions. And I think that that, if we go down that path, I think we risk uh, a world dominated by a globalized uh, technocratic class, a kind of oligarchy uh, of, uh, of wealth as well as a, a technocratic um, uh, world of expertise. And, and that will move us towards a post-democratic era I think the nation state's the only um, trustworthy um, vehicle for democratic polity. Yehuda, how do you wrestle with this idea of nationalism from your perspective? Well, I, I feel far less troubled by the fear of um, what Rusty characterized as globalism. I, I think the myth of the myth of globalism uh, has has dramatically outpaced uh, the actual threat. What the way I the way I tend to think about nationalism is using a 
uh, a prism from uh, from the late Israeli author Amos Oz, who uh, who characterizes uh, kind of the Jewish historical experience of of being the one object of the West that was meant to be the deterritorialized group, the one that wasn't actually allowed nation. Uh, and Oz, who is a very much very much left wing in terms of Israeli Palestinian politics, but actually a believer in the nation state, what he what he effectively says is. I understand that this is not a great instrument, <laughs> the nation state. I, I see all of its limitations. I see all the ways in which um, we slip very quickly from nationalism to crude expressions of nationalism, where we move from civic nationalism to ethnic nationalism. He says, but I just don't want to play the role that um, that other people want of me, which is to to so resist the nation that I become victimized by uh, by the by not having one, and so I, I, I what I like about it is this acknowledgement when you set up nationalism against globalism, then one of them becomes better than the other. I would rather say, listen, we have uh, we have a paucity of choices by which um, by which human beings get to go- can govern themselves. I'm going to basically choose uh, the nation. Uh, the nation state, because uh, because I fear what happens to vulnerable peoples who don't have access to one. But as a result, I'm going to be really supportive of ethnic minorities in their pursuit of self-determination and sovereignty. In other words, it can't be something that's allowed to some, but denied to others. And I'm also going to spend a lot of time trying to make sure that that nationalism constrains itself. Because as much as Jews historically suffered from not being able to access our own uh, national identity. We've also suffered enormously at the hands of populations who have abused their national identity. Um, so, mm. so I, that's, you know, I, I'm a reluctant and, um, and very cautious nationalist in that sense. Mm. And Yehuda, how about then this, this notion of, of pluralism? Um, it, in my mind, I guess in, in the circles that I move in, um, pluralism has always been held up as as the ideal you know as something that that um should be should be strive, striven for in terms of our how we're building our our society and i'm curious how you how you define this idea of pluralism and and what are some of the 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 um the uh, challenges that also arise with a pluralist community. Yeah, I guess it, it depends a little bit whether we're talking about pluralism as a technical tool to get along with other people mm-hmm. or pluralism epistemologically, where we really believe that we can't access truth unless we're in relationship to other people, that we're mm. that all of us have limited access to absolute truth, and that requires us to be in relationship with others. Um, I, I believe in both. Um, I believe that, uh, number one, our societies are more inclusive. Uh, We have a more passionate citizenry when we find ways to expand the boundaries of inclusion to make everybody feel like they are stakeholders in a society. So that's a that's on the technical side. And, And I think. I think American democracy is is suffering um, from from a, a diminished culture of pluralism, uh, with the kind of pluralism that mobilizes uh, an electorate and gets people excited to participate because they see themselves as included. But as a as a religious person, and also I, I really also believe in that none of us uh, none of us people of faith can um, can feel secure in in believing that everything we believe is totally right i i think that that turns faith into idolatry i think faith is supposed to make you humble and to believe that you only have limited access to you know to 
to truth and to, to knowledge. And that the reason we build relationships with people who believe very differently about the world than us is not because, you know, maybe we're trying to convince them a little bit, but mostly because we want to live in community together with people for, with whom we can pursue truth together. So whether it's technical or epistemological, I think that there, there are essential tools for, for good democratic living, but I also think there are essential tools for people of faith. Rusty, how about you? How do you engage with this concept of pluralism? Pluralism is a fact. It's not an ideal, and I think it's perverse when it becomes an ideal. For any society, solidarity should be the ideal, and pluralism is usually something that has to be overcome in order to create solidarity. So, uh, so I, I, I find myself people when people say, you know, we want we should we should want greater diversity, which is a kind of synonym for pluralism. I just have to shake my head and say, well, towards what end? Um, what, you know, what's that? Why, why would that be better? Whereas I can see how being united with kind of solidarity, I can see it's a social good where we trust each other, where we seek the same ends, where we share the same loves. Not completely, not to the point uh, where there's not um, texture and variance and all of that. Um, so you can rage against the fact that uh, there's a kind of intrinsic pluralism to the human condition, and I'm opposed to that sort of rage. But I think that as a matter of fact in societies, pluralism, if it becomes too extreme, is really a threat to the body politic and a threat to solidarity. And it's interesting to, to hear you say that because when I, whenever I've, I've worked with these terms personally, it's been diversity which is the thing at least in the context of the united states which is the is the fact you know the united states is a diverse country it has diverse people in some degree in different ways and that pluralism is the is the framing and way you work with that diversity and then unity is the thing or solidarity is the thing that is the outcome of a constructive positive way of working with that pluralism as opposed to, you know, being very reactionary against it and, and wanting to, um, uh, I, I mean, essentially raise up one group as superior over the others that are in that context. Well, I mean, you could, you can see how federalism and the, for the founders giving great deal of scope to individual states to go their own way is uh, accommodating themselves to the fact that, the country in its infancy uh, was pluralistic, and it, and it remains so. I mean, Texas is not the same as Washington State. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the greater the greater Washington metro area is not the same as uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and so place and, and so forth. And so, uh, wise wise leadership knows you know not to force people into the same mold, but at the same time, wise leadership always seeks to create. Uh, a sufficient unity that we trust each other um, so that that's essential in order for there to be a democratic polity where one side wins uh, and the other side concedes rather than, you know, going into a condition of uh, civil war. You have to trust your adversary not to kill you or not to imprison you if you lose an election. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where solidarity becomes so crucial. So, you know, we know that whether it's in the Balkans or uh, you know, we're in Syria for that matter. Uh, if 
those are pluralistic societies uh, in a way that America is not pluralistic um, in the sense that we really do have a national identity. It's, it's, a, it's a mile wide and an inch deep, but it's quite real. And so when people say America is a diverse society, I have to ch- multicultural, I have to chuckle because I don't think foreigners see our society as multicultural. They see it as very monocultural and aggressive and invasive. <laughs> and so so uh, I think we we've made pluralism into a, uh, a, a kind of uh, praise word. Diversity and pluralism are treated as praise words that I think we complement ourselves as having uh, possessing them when we don't really. I, uh, you mentioned a little bit about where we are as a, as a country right now. And, and certainly I think there's a lot of anxiety about where, you know, we are going regardless of, of what your political beliefs are. I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, fear around, around, you know, who could, not just hold the Oval Office, but you know, sort of down the line, what what that means for the country. Um, I'm curious for for each of you, what would be your hope for for where our country would be or could be a year from now, and what do you think is required to get us there, Rusty? What do you think? You know, I'm a uh, I'm a populist. My hope is that I think the greatest problem facing our country is the divide between the top 10% and everybody else. And uh, that, that we, as a result, our country is run by people who increasingly dislike the people that they have to govern. And, and the people who are governed increasingly distrust the people who, who run the country and make the decisions and control things. And so we need to repair that breach as best we can. And, and uh, so my, my hope is that I don't think that's going to come in the next year, to be frank, because, uh, you know, the uh, there's such an intense politically polarized environment. But, but you know, I'm a, as a populist nationalist, I, the current occupant of the White House, while I certainly have my misgivings about many of his qualities, I think is pushing us in the right direction, um, both economically in terms of trying to rebuild the manufacturing base and restore opportunity for high school educated Americans, and also culturally in terms of uh, um, being tough on all the good people at the top of society. Well, there's a lot to pull apart there. Um, I, first, I wanna ask you who did the same question to uh, to see where, where would you like to see the US uh, one year from now and, and what do you think is going to take us to get there. Uh, I'm not too optimistic about a year from now, but um, <laughs> but thinking a little further off, I've been very concerned in this country about the collapsing of the categories of moral, political, and partisan. Uh, they obviously live together on a spectrum, right? P- uh, but they're not the same. And uh, the result of that collapse has been that people who uh, inhabit different sides of the political aisle see each other not only as sparring partners in pursuit of the same goals, but ultimately as, as essentially inhabiting such radically different worldviews. And one of the consequences of that, it's not just bad for community, it's not just bad for society, but it's actually bad for moral issues themselves. There are a whole set of issues in our society, whether it's uh, the inequality of wealth, which you mentioned, Rusty, whether it's uh, racial justice, whether it's climate change, that are actually uh, moral issues, and it's pretty obvious to see the right side of those moral issues 
but they have become uh, subject to effectively partisan discourse. So what my, my real hope for, for our country is that the debate around climate change is not, is there such a thing as climate change? Uh, but no, this is a phenomenon that is going to radically disrupt our world uh, much faster, already has, uh, much faster than we think it has, uh, and, and, and we think it will. And it's going to require us to work towards solutions, and the political divide in this country should be a set of solutions A versus set of solutions B. Uh, and, and the same goes for um, for a whole bunch of issues as well. You know, I, I think, you know, one example to this effect is, you know, I'll, I'll take what I can get in terms of a, a Supreme Court seat, even at the cost of the kind of degrading of our of our public and moral discourse. That to me is um, is trading on morality uh, to achieve partisan goals. So I, that's what I would love to see as a, a kind of change in our society. Hmm. Well, I want to hold some time, as we do in the second part of our show, for, for our guests to ask questions of each other. Um, I like to get out of the way and, and uh, allow my, my much smarter guests to, uh, to follow up on things that, that you're curious about, either about each other's stories or some of the points that you've made, um, things that you might realize that you're uh, ignorant or misunderstood about each other's tradition. Uh, we try to model productive interfaith dialogue on our show while while not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So I'll ask uh, Yehuda if you have anything you want to follow up on with, with Rusty. Yeah, yeah, Rusty, I don't think... Um, I think you understand my faith pretty well if you've been spending years at Kol Nudre, so I'm not too nervous about that. <laughs> and, and I actually had a year in residence at Catholic University, so I think we're good on that front. I guess I'd love for you to talk a little bit more. I, when you spoke about your reservations about pluralism as an ideal, and instead the push for unity and solidarity. I mean, I'll just mirror back to you that I find those terms, I find it scary, actually, because what you do to those who you, uh, who don't, per, what, 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 what might happen to those who don't properly perform the kind of unity or solidarity that's demanded by a society, uh, just feels almost inherently violent. Whereas uh, a vision for pluralism is that we find a way to live together with people of difference um, who are different than us, regardless of whether or not they perform that unity or solidarity. So I, I assume that you don't you don't have those implied. Uh, you're not you're not actually implying that you think that someone should be scared if they don't perform that unity or solidarity. But I would love for you to to unpack that a little bit more so that I could kind of make better sense of it. Yeah, you, I think you adverted to it in your hopes for the future, which is that you, you don't want there to be a, a kind of destructive pluralism uh, with respect to really core political moral issues. You would like there to be, you know, relative unity with respect to those and then debate about means, not ends. So I think you, you and I both agree that a society that is purely pluralistic winds up blowing apart and falling upon itself in a kind of endless struggle. So, so solidarity would simply mean that, you know, you have to identify what it is that you share in common. And, and I think that different eras require different emphases. There are times of over-consolidation and there are times of over-fragmentation. And I think that you and I both agree that we're living in a time of over-fragmentation. And if that's the case, then we need to put an emphasis on what we share, not how we differ. 
Got it. So I understand pluralism. You you understand pluralism descriptively that it represents uh, people living together with difference, and I'm I'm understanding it uh, prescriptively. Now I don't I don't think we have. I don't think we have too much pluralism right now. I don't think it's the default state. Uh, when I talk about pluralism, uh, I'm interested, for instance, in in theological pluralism, and I'd love for you to reflect on that too. Does does your Catholicism, uh, and especially because you used the distinction before, which I which I wanted to come back to also of uh, truth versus is it meaningful? Yeah. Um, does your commitment to Catholic truth uh, to that kind of orthodoxy is that a is that a is that so totalizing of a truth commitment that no other truth claims made by other faiths can be part of that discussion? Well, it would depend on what the truth claims are. Uh-huh. But those that contradict the teachings of the Catholic Church can't be. They can't. They can't be true. Um, I mean, they can't both be true. Let's put it that way. And so, obviously, every every human person has to navigate this gap between what they say they believe and what they actually believe, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And, and we all do that. I mean, we want to believe the teachings of our tradition, uh, you know, with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul. And so, but of course we don't. Um, and, and so we have to grapple with that. And oftentimes, oftentimes contradictory or divergent truth claims by other traditions uh, can, can enter in. And sometimes, in fact, we change our minds. And we, we, we convert, if you will. Other times, the seemingly conflicting truth claim winds up spurring us to a deeper reflection about the truths of our own tradition. And we wind up realizing, no, actually, it's not a contradiction, but rather uh, these things complement each other or illuminate each other. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they are just contradictory. And, and we have to be open to that fact. And I think the danger of, of a too ideological pluralism is excuses us from uh, grappling with the friction that competing truth claims make. Hmm. I'm not sure you and I disagree about this, to be honest. It's a question of emphasis. I mean, which is the greater blessing to be confirmed in one's convictions or to be challenged in one's convictions? Uh, it's, I don't know. I can't, I, 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 it's for me, it's not, it's not a slam dunk, but it's confirmed. Um, it really isn't. Uh, I'm, I'm very taken with a whole bunch of late 20th century, especially post-Holocaust Jewish theologians who write about what it means to be a religious person, uh, post-Holocaust is to be a little bit uncertain. And, uh, and I think I, I, I guess I would say personally, I am more fearful of, uh, religiously, of those who are confirmed in their convictions than those who are constantly challenging them. So, you know, that, that, they, that might pull us in a little bit of a different direction. It might condition who we want to spend time with and why. Uh, but for me, I think I'm more nervous about confirmation than I am challenged. Yeah, I think we differ here. I think, I think uh, the 21st century gives us endless opportunities of challenge and precious few for confirmation. So I think we should cherish the deepening rather than the expanding, if you will, to use those metaphors. But it's a question of degree, and obviously there are different seasons in life. But I would say challenge for the sake of, uh, I, I cherish challenge for the sake of greater conviction. Not uh, So it's a means to the end. It's not an end in itself. Hmm. Whereas one can never believe too much. One can believe superficially and rigidly in a way that, 
is thin, you know, if you will, brittle and thin, but a deep faith can never be too deep and, and, and too strong. Hmm. How could it, how could, how could a devotion to truth ever be too much? I don't think it makes sense logically to think that we could ever be devoted to truth too much. Of course, the question comes, well, wait a minute, how do I know it's true? But that's a separate question, it seems to me. And then your explorations and your exposure to pluralistic points of view becomes a, a, a tool, a means, a device, a technique by which to, to check your work, so to speak. But you're checking your work for the sake of returning to conviction. Rusty, are there other aspects of um, of Yehuda's uh, story, some of the ideas that he put out there that you would like to follow up with? I want to know, is the Hartman part of your organization named for David Hartman? Yes, uh, David Hartman founded the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, named after his father. And I, uh, I came on board in 2010 to open up the North American branch of the Hartman Institute. You have a Jewish mission, mission, but I'm uh, wondering, how could you characterize the culture? I always associate Hartman's name with the kind of interface between modern orthodoxy and, if you will, philosophy, literature, culture. So that was the, it was definitely the case for Hartman's project himself. He passed away in 2003, I think, uh, uh, 2013, I'm sorry. Uh, it was definitely the case for him as a modern orthodox rabbi that he was uh, very enchanted by that confrontation between modern orthodoxy and the world of the intellectual, philosophical, moral traditions uh, of, of modernity. Uh, the Institute formally became a pluralistic institution, I think in some point in the 90s, by which it meant uh, it, we were no longer kind of denominationally associated with orthodoxy, so that scholars of different uh, backgrounds could be part of the Institute as well, but also committed uh uh, pragmatically towards building cultures of pluralism. And here I mean intentional pluralism, not accidental pluralism, actually putting together people across difference in pursuit uh, of truth. But that same, the same mission still lives, which is how does, how does Judaism remain up to date morally and intellectually with, uh, with all of the um, moral, political, and philosophical discourses that modernity has given us. And sometimes, you know, as you would imagine, the tradition stands for itself and sometimes, uh, and, and is basically almost building an apologetic against uh, against all of the, the, the ideas of the modern world. And sometimes actually the tradition needs to be updated uh, based on that wisdom. So the Institute now consists of 60 to 70 scholars between North America and Israel from all different disciplines of scholarship. And their job is to articulate uh, a Judaism of meaning that is informed by those critical vocabularies uh, for to produce a, a Judaism of spiritual and moral excellence uh, for today. And has always been a part of the Institute to do that uh, oftentimes as an intra-Jewish conversation for Jewish, uh, for Jewish leaders, for rabbis, et cetera, but also to expand that circle to include uh, Christian and Muslim theologians and leaders because a feature of what it means to be a Jew in the modern world is to be in conversation with people of other faiths. What, what do you find is the most kind of exciting, promising um, uh, aspect of the kind of current intellectual scene that you think has the greatest promise to enrich uh, Judaism? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I could answer that question for Catholicism either, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I am, 
Um, I am actually very enchanted by um, by some of the philosophical work that is being done in pursuit of um, of racial justice, gender justice, um, and other other forms of political justice. I think it stretches it's stretching the Jewish community in all sorts of ways. But I think it's also uh, pressure testing the Jewish people who are sometimes the embodiment of a faith and oftentimes the expression of a people. We're both of those things to clarify our moral commitments. And I, I think this is um, I think it's a very important time for the Jewish people. Uh, you know, living with with state power in Israel for the first time in 2000 years mm. and living, living very differently in America with a different type of political power that's available for the Jewish people. So I think a, a lot of these discourses are actually uh, very rich and very provocative. And the reason why you see pushback in the Jewish community against some of this language is because I think people are nervous about whenever, whenever power has to test itself against, um, against moral conviction, uh, it's usually a sign that that's actually a, a worthy conversation to be having. As we, bring this conversation in for a landing. I want to um, I want to ask each of you, what's one thing about your tradition or, or your individual practice of that tradition uh, that you would like others to understand better? I know that we didn't really talk a lot about religious practice per se, um, so I guess you could extend that to, to more, you know, the ideology that, that you all uh, take up and identify with. Yeah, I would say... Most people look at Catholicism and are very flummoxed by the role of uh, the Virgin Mary. And I guess well, I would say that in Marian piety, what part of the role of Marian piety is to express a really striking ambition on behalf of the spiritual life, that flesh and blood, finite, created human beings really can become... Uh, uh, transparent instruments of the divine will. And so uh, Marian piety for Catholics is a way of um, exciting the ambition of the spiritual life. And it's not worshiping Mary, as many people think. Yehuda? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, Jews, Jews make fun of ourselves and get made fun of for, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Um, mm-hmm. And for the political, ideological, ethnic diversity that's just part and parcel of Jewish people, it travels together with the fact that, you know, Jews tend to be the, the religious minority in America that has the lowest, like scores the least on on doctrinal faith. Um, mm, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really important that uh, that many of us as Jews see those as as features and not, uh, fe- that's a feature and not a bug um, of, uh, of the Jewish experience. And that it's oftentimes very perplexing when Jews get classed with other faiths and then evaluated on the basis of faith, because I think we are basically a weird, um, we're kind of a weird ethnic group that is connected to a faith, but not defined by it. And, uh, and as a result, some of the categories that are used to like define Christianity, Islam and Judaism just don't really work to characterize the Jewish people. And I, it's one of the things I love about being part of this people. Um, one of the things I'm scared of is the way that Jewish disagreements are oftentimes weaponized by by our political allies on the right and the left, um, you know, to make a case for what's a good Jew and what's not a good Jew. And I would rather just kind of lean back and, and swim in this warm bath of a, of a kind of a messy people uh, <laughs> kind of all over the map with its doctrinal commitments. Yeah, I think that that, that point about, about 
you know, what is faith or what do you define as faith is certainly a conversation that, that I have a lot with um, folks of us that move within this somewhat um, limited space of, of, you know, interfaith organizing, you know, and that, and that definition, what it, what does it mean uh, to apply that term interfaith when, when faith isn't necessarily the main motivating concept for, for, for your religious identity or cultural identity or what have you. I recognize that we uh, really only started to scratch the surface in the hour that we've had, had together. And there's much more to, to dive into and to, um, to banter back and forth about. Um, And I also um, note that you know, I, I find a lot of more conservative Christians get kind of freaked out by the notion uh, or the label of interfaith engagement. Um, and so I especially appreciate Rusty uh, for, for accepting the invitation. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. And Yehuda, thanks so much for, for jumping in uh, so soon after the high holy days. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's a good time for you get to get a lot of time to think, so it's useful preparation for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, are there ways um, that people can learn more about your work uh, and engage with your projects, Yehuda? Uh, yeah, just point people to a, a, a Hartman podcast called Identity Crisis that's available on Spotify and, and the Apple Podcast app and other places where we take major uh, pieces of Jewish news and ideas in Jewish life and, um, and really probe them. So I would, I would uh, send people to there. Great. And Rusty, for you, for First Things? People can subscribe to First Things magazine and visit us at firstthings.com, where we publish new stuff every day. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Really appreciate you uh, joining me today, and I hope you you both have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Dear listener, that's it for my conversation this morning with my guests, Yehuda Kurtzer and Rusty Reno. I want to thank my guests for a uh, terrific and engaging dialogue. As always, I want to also give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, of course, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaithish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Follow us on social media at Interfaithish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And keep writing us with the Interfaithish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.